why can't that be the representation of what architecture is for the common person so that they understand that, yes, not only can you probably afford it, but there's a benefit to it. And we're not just the elitist walking around with our capes and bow ties. We perpetuate our own stereotype and it doesn't help us. Welcome to the Archispeak Podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. Each episode, Neil Pan, Cormac Phelan, and I have a casual conversation about all things architecture, and we invite you to listen in as we talk about everything in the profession, both the good and the bad. Maybe you're considering a career in architecture, you're still in school, or you've been around the blocks of Corbusier's City of Tomorrow more times than you'd like to admit. Join us in the studio as we stand around the water cooler and talk about why we love our chosen profession. It's time for some Arcaspeak. Welcome to episode 51 of the Arcaspeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxell. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And this week's show is sponsored by Arccat. And we will have more to say about them later in the show. And we really do appreciate them uh, returning as a sponsor to Archispeak. Uh, really appreciate that. So to kick off the 2015 year, we thought we'd uh, take a look at the uh, state of the union, so to speak, uh, in architecture. And, and this is being brought about by an article from uh, Forbes magazine, or at least Forbes uh, online, by a gentleman named Justin Shubo, I believe. I got that name correct. And uh, he wrote an article that's titled, Architecture Continues to Implode. More Insiders Admit the Profession is Failing. And uh, that's a pretty dubious little intro there for uh, uh, what's happening in the, in the, uh, in, in the industry. So uh, this article goes into uh, quite a, a bit of things, and we'll, we'll probably touch on a few things. But I think generally we wanted to talk how this uh, article really kind of... Uh, sets us off on this conversation, which we're, we're going to uh, be talking about tonight, which is kind of the state of the union of architecture in general in the, in the profession. And, uh, and Cormac, you brought this article uh, to our attention. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on kind of one of the, some of the things that were, that were brought up in the article? It was, it was interesting because as I was reading it, you know, it's got links to multiple other articles and stuff. And, you know, it started to kind of, follow the, you know, fall down the rabbit hole and read comments and read every, you know, all these different things. And, you know, uh, earlier before, uh, um, we got going, I kind of referred to it as, it almost seems like the architectural fight club where, you know, there's so many different opinions about, um, the state of the union is, you know, we're dubbing it, but it just really seems like, you know, there's so many different opinions about, where the profession's going, you know, kind of this uh, doom and gloom idea of, you know, if we're continue on the path that we are. And, um, you know, so it's, it's what it really led to was not necessarily anything definitive about, you know, here's where the, you know, profession of architecture is and, you know, here's what we can do to cure it. But it just came up with several more questions. And, you know, that's really what I want to dig into is, not necessarily the meat of 
the uh, the article itself, but what the article is saying to me and, you know, all of the different questions that kind of popped up as I was reading it. And I was just kind of like furiously like scribbling down quotes and comments and thoughts and ideas and stuff like that. And, you know, kind of want to dig into, you know, uh, things like that. Yeah, I think um, we should probably say real quick, we're going to have the link to the article in the show notes. And so you might want to read that um, before listening or, or, or maybe not. Um, we haven't spent a lot of time since reading this thinking about it. So I think a lot of our comments tonight are going to be right off the cuff. And, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of my comments are really just, it's, it's not, I mean, they go hand in hand with uh, everything that that particular article and many of the other articles that are linked in that article. <clears throat> so we'll actually be able to uh, just put one article up, you know, one link up. And uh, when you go to it, you're going to get a whole heap load of other articles to uh, to read just through the links. Yeah, it's kind um, of a rabbit hole of a yeah. of an article. There's lots of stuff. But, uh, you know, but I mean... You're going to have, I mean, I'm pretty sure you're going to have as many questions as I did when you, when you read it, because, you know, I mean, it's a very, um, you know, to kind of dig into it, you know, one of the things that they were, you know, um, bringing up is, you know, this is kind of a rebuttal to another article that was written, but, uh, you know, and also published, actually it was published in the New York times and, um, it was called How to Rebuild Architecture, and it was just an op-ed piece by uh, Stephen Bingler and Martin Pedersen. Uh, and hopefully I'm saying those names right, too. But, um, you know, and they, they were talking about, you know, where they feel like the state of the union is in their mind in, you know, how to rebuild it, how to, you know, kind of move forward. <clears throat> and it comes as a very, most of these approaches are purely related to their, to me, you know, kind of a very stylistic opinion. Um, you know, it's surface. These guys are, you know, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very surface thing. I mean, it's, it, it's, you know, well, I think the, you know, the state of architecture is really bad because, you know, we've got all these modern buildings in it, or we've got, you know, these guys who are trying to hold on to tradition and do all of these, you know, traditional buildings or classical buildings, or these guys over here, they're very avant-garde and look what they're doing. And, oh my God, that's going to kill architect. And it was, so it was more of how they felt the fashion of architecture is destroying architecture. And, you know, so it was, it was, that's why I called it, you know, the architectural fight club. Cause it was a bunch of infighting between architects and architectural critics and architectural opinionators that just, you know, they want to kind of have their voice heard of what, you know, and it's just a typical, you know, it's almost like a typical Sunday afternoon with a bunch of different architects that have a bunch of different styles and why theirs is better and why the other guy's um, style is going to kill architecture. Yeah, it's a lot like religion or Mac versus PC, it, it, which often comes down to some kind of a dogmatic viewpoint where it's, people love what they love, right? And so they're going to fight to the death and, and argue tooth and nail up against other people who have the, the opposing viewpoint. So I don't think this is too different from, from those other things, you know, Ford versus Chevy. Chevy. 
<laughs> Bored. <laughs> exactly. There is, you know, there were, there was one, you know, kind of like underlying thing that all of them could agree on. And I think, you know, um, maybe you guys uh, have different thoughts on this, but there is a concerning amount of architecture or buildings created by architects. Let's kind of water it down a little bit that, um, you know, art isn't putting our best foot forward. You know, they're, uh, you know, they just kind of, they're, they're watered down. They're not, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's, you know, maybe just not trying. And I'm trying to be really nice here. Um, cause I really want to avoid just saying, you know, really crappy. Um, and, uh, you know, they were, they were, it, it kind of goes back to the Geary, you know, um, uh, assertion of the, you know, 98% of, you know, architecture is shit. And, you know, in a way, um, one of the things that they're, they're arguing about is, um, now, you know, it, it, it kind of has a, a point and it's just like, you know, this style is bad. That style is bad. This is affecting it. That is, that's affecting it. Um, in their, you know, they're, they're kind of attacking each other on, you know, what I'm, I'm considering is architecture that's at least trying. And what everybody seems to always tend to ignore is all of the architecture that isn't trying. Is and, it, yeah, uh, well, is that architecture? I mean, may, well, exactly. maybe, maybe everybody just already just knows that it isn't. I don't know. Well, you know, I mean, you've got all of these cookie cutter builder, you know, developer type, um, you know, structures that are out there that, you know, you can, uh, they're pick anonymous, me up. Yeah. you know, there, there are these anonymous buildings that you can pick me up and put me in California or the Midwest or, you know, here in the East and they all look the same. It's just this watered down kind of very distilled eh, kind of building. Hey, Cormac, I'm going to jump in right here because um, I, I used to work in that industry and it's not about, it's it's all about the builder making a, a buck. Uh, I mean, right. at the end of the day, right? I mean, so, and this was something that as an architect, we fought often with our developer clients with is that uh, we wanted to create, you know, a specific architecture for the place and um, the builders often would come in and depending on the, mm, let's say the, uh, cost of the project, you know, and depending on where it was, you know, they were always like, Hey, where's our plan book? Do we have something? You know, cause a lot of these developers, what's happened over the years is that instead of having, um, small regional developers, you ended up getting all of these smaller guys got bought out. Yeah. And now they're these giant conglomerates mm-hmm. and, you know, Pulte, KB, um, Lennar, and companies like that, that now um, own all these small builders. They've all been absorbed. And so now it's like, okay, well, we have a division in Florida. You know, they've got great plans. They've sold well. And we want to put, we want to do that here in California, you know, or Texas or wherever they're building. And to them, it's an economy of scale. I don't have to pay the architect again to do it. Maybe there's some some small changes we have to do to update it, but that's it. We don't have to start from scratch. So it's an economic decision. It's a product. Made. 
It's a product. Exactly. It's a product economically decided upon to do. Now, I will say this in, in, in some places here, mainly probably in the Bay area and in Southern to certain extent in, in areas in Southern California, there are some pretty strict guidelines about what you can and can't do. And there are many jurisdictions around here always trying to push the envelope of, uh, you can't just do a plain square box with no, no articulation. And, um, that's not always been the case. And so for a lot of some of our projects, you know, we had the jurisdictions pushing us. And so we had to push the developers like, hey, you're not going to get away with just a blank box here. And, you know, that you're pulling from Arizona or Texas or wherever they're pulling their plans from. And uh, and so and and this actually was brought up or at least my my comments. Um, one of the things that came up in the article, they were talking about. Uh, designs that were done uh, for uh, New Orleans after Katrina. And mm-hmm. there were these, you know, modern type designs that uh, didn't do, didn't do very well in uh, the lower ninth ward area because they just didn't fit the architecture that was there. And, you know, I think one of the comments was, you know, flat roofs. It's like, Hey, does, doesn't anybody realize it rains here? Um, so bad idea. And they're failing. Some of them are failing, but, what I thought was interesting, and one of my comments was, you know, why why shouldn't some of the architects that are out there, or uh, later on, um, the other article uh, written by Aaron uh, Betsky, uh, which is kind of really out there. I mean, he's he's kind of on the far end of the spectrum of, hey, we need to challenge, we need to push, every project should be out there. Uh, and if you're not doing that, then you ain't shit. I don't know. I, that's kind of where his uh, comments were coming from. But the way I took it is, you know, d- uh, you know, and the other guys were saying, oh, well, we need to be more traditional. And, and um, that the two gentlemen you mentioned or, earlier, they, they were trying to do something that is more, uh, uh, what do they say here, you know, physical and spiritual to the area. Uh, and so my thing is, you know, I think we need some of both. I think we've got a, a, a spectrum here, and we we need the Frank Gehrys out there uh, pushing architecture in a direction. And we, you know, we have to accept that that architecture is not going to work for everybody. And so you're not going to, you know, so you have to have, you know, you're going to end up with crappy architecture on one side because people just need a place to live and they don't really care. I mean, there's a lot of people out there, they just don't care. They don't have a design sense. They don't have a style sense. They just need a home or a building to work out of. Nobody cares. And and nobody's going to give a thought to it. So I think you've got that on one side. You've got the Frank Gehrys and, you know, the other people on the other side trying to really push modernism or, you know, push the envelope and, you know, be who cares if it lakes. Um, but we're pushing the, the architecture forward. Well, I'm forward. sure they care, but it's still... I think I agree. It's very important that there is a spectrum and because that's called progress and it's just like these Silicon Valley companies or SpaceX or Tesla or Apple or Google or, you know, it's all of these companies that are, they don't push the boundary in every aspect of their business, but they, they push it in at least a few if not a big majority of them, because that's the business they're in is pushing boundaries. And to me, that's the the business that some of these architects are in. And if a client wants to pay for that, I mean, why, 
I guess everybody gets to have an opinion about everything. But when it comes to stuff like the Louis Vuitton building uh, and, you know, where they are really talking about these these monuments, these objects, um, you know, the fashion. I mean, really, like, if that stuff wasn't done, that that those technologies, those materials never make it into the market and never, we would still be building everything out of sticks and plaster, right? Well, okay, so, so think about this, you know, I mean, I like to think about um, the way that the car industry kind of evolves and technologies in the car industry evolve is normally through the racing industry. You know, they try things out, you know, better uh, braking systems, better, you know, um, handling and controlling and stuff like that, that eventually basically gets kind of dumbed down to a usable product for the everyman. And so, you know, you've got the, you know, regular Fords and Chevys and things like that, that kind of bring all of this, envelope pushing technology into everyday use and so you you've got these arguments of um you know all these different architects who are talking about okay you know it's only architecture if you're pushing the limits and you're pushing the limits and you're you're like on the cutting edge you're staying avant-garde um and the kind of more and you know, I kind of wrote this little quote of, you know, charming versus avant-garde, you know. So to push it, you know, to, t- to take this avant-garde stuff and push it as far as you can to make some of the, um, the you know, make some of the things that you've discovered in this avant-garde, you know, kind of pushing progress forward uh, kind of mentality, make it usable kind of on the everyday scale. You know, you normally don't say, okay, I'm going to have a whole row of Frank Gehry houses. You're going to say, here's the big Frank Gehry building. And now I've got a bunch of, you know, more of what everybody's used to kind of buildings that, you know, take that application and kind of, you know, make it more acceptable to the common man, you know, and it was it's kind of interesting some of the comments you know back and forth was is that you know architecture is for you know the almost the elitist and you know common man be damned but you know yeah that think was about the, it. that was the one that was in the architect magazine right he said that yeah. architecture is for the people who can afford it exactly you know and, and you know it it kind of it can, that one always kind of just stresses me out because, you know, I mean, we've got, you know, we do so many um, buildings that are really for just, you know, and I, I hate to keep using the term common man, but, I mean, you know, it's just like the lay person. It's just, it's there for, you know, like the schools, you know, you, you and I do schools and, you know, we may not be doing um, high, high design, pushing the limits. You know, we, we try to where we can. But we also try to be smart about, um, you know, where we use the money, how we use the money, because this is a building that's, you know, for education. And how do we get, uh, how do we create spaces that make, um, you know, these make the learning environment, you know, better? It's not that we're making these unsophisticated buildings. We're just trying to use, trying to spread the money as far as we can to make 
the best possible environment that we possibly can that meets all of these different constraints and criteria. And it's not that we're giving up and just accepting, you know, kind of a, a mundane building. It's we're trying to take what would normally be just a pushing of the envelope and kind of spreading it out. Yeah. I, I was going to come back to the, the comment about architectures for the, those who can afford it. I have a feeling that, that, that there's, there's, there's quite a bit of truth to that. And, yeah. and I, I, in, in my business, you know, as a sole proprietor working on, you know, small remodels and additions, architecture is for those that can afford it. And I get a lot of that. I meet with people and if I, I tell them, well, you know, it's going to cost uh, approximately this much to do this for, for me to do it. And I get a lot of reactions. I, some of them are just like, well, you know, I can't afford that. And I can understand that. I mean, if, if you have a very small budget uh, and, you know, I'm telling you it's it's going to take me, you know, uh, a 10% of that budget to do your project um, only because, you know, I have to, I can't work for $10 an hour. Um, and, and so I, I have a standard I have to maintain in order to put food on the table and to pay the bills. Uh, just like, you know, they do uh, as somebody who's trying to hire me. So I think there's a lot of truth to it, it, the people that, who can afford it uh, can use it. Now, that being said, um, some people want that service and will pay for that service because they understand that there is a benefit. And I think that's one of the areas that architecture is really falling down is because all of the all of the press seems to go to the Frank Gehrys and the other folks uh, that were mentioned in this article that are pushing the envelope, uh, the Betsky article, you know, that's just like, ah, you know, don't care about everybody else. And I think that, unfortunately, that's the perception that, you know, going to your uh, words, the common person uh, sees, they see that. And I really think that that is something that the profession in general needs to focus on, is that architecture is not for the elitist. Uh, it needs to be for everybody, because it's very obvious when I'm driving down the street or walking a house and I go, oh, what happened here? You know, it, it, it's very obvious that an architect likely wasn't involved in this, because there's just very odd decisions that were made that create strange spaces and so, you know, I have a problem with that. That that's where I think architecture is in a crisis. Yeah. Is that we're we're going to the extremes where people who can afford us are the only people that get that service, and then the perception is that well, I'm just a common person. I just want a room addition. I don't need an architect. I get that a lot. Oh, I, I really don't need an architect for this, no, right? It's true. I mean, what do I need? <laughs> what do I? I need. I need a blueprint. I need a you know a permit. And so I don't need an architect, but then all I have to do is sit down and in like five minutes, I can spot half a dozen different problems with a particular layout or something. And this isn't always true, but it's like, you know, an architect can, can make this better. And I really think that the profession needs to focus on, I mean, I don't know the percentage and maybe you guys can think of this off the top of your head. I mean, the majority of firms in this country are like five to eight man or person offices and you know, doing small projects. And it's like, well, what, why can't we 
why can't that be the representation of what architecture is for the common person so that they understand that, yes, not only can you probably afford it, but there's a benefit to it. And we're not just the elitist walking around with our capes and bow ties. We perpetuate our own stereotype and it doesn't help us. Well, yeah, and this is why I think the headline makes more sense when you start to frame it this way, which is that the, the profession is imploding. Really what it's doing is it's it's the gap in between is getting much wider, right? I mean, we can see mm-hmm. the exact mirror happening with with the economics of this country where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, and there's nobody going to be left in the middle pretty soon, right? I mean, it's the same type of a right. thing. And the biggest problem that architecture has is that nobody knows what the heck we do. And I think I've told this anecdote before, but when I spoke with somebody who I won't name their name, but they, they're they affiliated with NCARB, and they did a poll, and I don't know if it was... I don't know how far-reaching this was, but... It was a poll of people in professional uh, situations like doctors, lawyers, engineers, um, and they and they just asked what the perception, their perception of architects were. And the majority of the, and I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but it was that architects get in the way and Ooh. they keep them from, or they, they slow down the process of them getting what they want. And the person I was talking to their kind of summation of of what they were talking about said well the only thing i can say is thank god they still need us to get a permit and this is somebody who's pretty high up in the on the chain here and i thought how long until they don't need us to get a permit that's my first thought because if people see that as a problem they will find a solution to it and they will cut you out of that equation. And the reason that that could easily happen is because nobody sees the value, right? And I'm totally generalizing when I say nobody, but lots and lots and lots. The majority of people do not see the value of what we offer, and it's because we suck at telling it. We totally suck at it. We show pictures of finished buildings from the outside at sunset. We don't show what it's like how we've made somebody's life better in this building. We suck at that. We don't tell those stories. And we are damn lucky if we have a client who will tell those stories because that's how we're going to get our next job, right? I worked with them. They did this, this, and this for me. You should work with them too. Oh, that sounds great. I had no idea that architects do that. Um, And so to me, like that's really where architecture is imploding is because we're not good at sharing what we do with people who need what we do. We're good at sharing it with ourselves. Or something as simple as you're talking about explaining what we do and, you know, what value we bring to the project. You know, um, another thing that we can do um, in this way of storytelling is how does what we do affect what they do? How did we make their business or their school or their whatever better I mean, did, you know, through, you know, better architecture, are we making um, their workers happier, you know, and more comfortable at, at what they do so that they can become more productive and, and things like that? And and there are, you know, study after studies that show, you know, especially in, you know, our line of, uh, you know, design right now. I mean, I mean, you and I do, you know, schools a lot. And, 
you know, what are some of the things that, you know, studies show about improvement in, um, you know, test scores and, you know, the ability to learn and all this other stuff. It's, you know, through the improvement of the environment, you know, but we're not, you know, nine times out of 10, you know, that's not what we're selling. You know, that's not what we're telling them. Well, we're, and we also have some, the cards kind of stacked against us a lot of times. I know with a lot of clients that I work with, um, the people involved in that process are not even on the educational side of the business. They're on the finance right. side. They're on the maintenance right. side. Mm. They're, you know, and so <laughs> a lot of times I'm going to have a maintenance guy making a decision about the learning environment based, right. based yeah, on, absolutely. based on the, how sturdy is this material versus, you know, what kind of light can we get in this room? Um, or there's lots of what ifs all the time. Well, what if somebody kicks a soccer ball? What if somebody throws a something uh -huh. at this? What if somebody scratches that? What if, and it's like, well, really you can't, you can never stop asking what if questions. And so at that point it becomes a prison. It becomes, you start using, you start thinking with that mentality and you go to, I guess lowest common denominator, the the beefiest stuff that you know the smallest windows the, the the bulletproof the bulletproof and so and so then I mean why what okay so you have to ask why right well it's because it makes their job easier okay well if I make your job think about this if I make your job too easy you're not going to have a job right I mean this we have to get back to who the client really is. And we have to kind of inspire the people that we're working with to want to fulfill the highest and best for the actual clients of the buildings. And actually, so here, here's, you just kind of illustrated another way that we are in fact imploding. And that's, you know, by dumbing down the building and breaking it down to its lowest common denominator so that we can make all of the other people who aren't really affected by the building's lives easier, we're essentially dumbing down, watering down, and, you know, just making something that really isn't truly architecture. The ultimate compromise, yeah. It's just a build. It's going and taking the, the philosophy. I mean, you think about, um, you and I were having a chat earlier uh, before we started about kind of my favorite period of, of architectural history is the you know late 1800s and early 1900s where you know there was such this interesting innovation and if you think about the the way that the um you know and this is the er early onset of the automotive industry and stuff thinking about all of the manufacturing buildings and how amazingly they were designed um and they were absolutely utilitarian but i mean they were also you know done by architects and if you think about how they are done today they're big metal buildings you know they're they're completely taken us you know you were you were talking earlier about how to remove us from the equation how to get the permit without having an architect well those are some ways you know um go pre-manufactured because uh pre-manufactured um depending on the jurisdiction there's plenty of places that a engineer or a um, contractor can pull it if it is a pre-approved product, you know, that yeah. the state's already reviewed it. They said, yeah, this is good to go. You know, you just uh, give me a site plan and, you know, your, your drainage plan and your parking and all that other stuff. 
and you can put whatever metal building you want on there. And guess what? We're not in the equation anymore. That that also happens in residential, too. I mean, I think in many states, you know, if you wanted to pull a permit to do a single-family home, you can do so. You don't need an architect for that. And that's that's been a big challenge, I think, for a lot of sole proprietors that are trying to do smaller projects, um, that that's what you're up against. You're often up against, and it's less likely that an individual homeowner is going to you know, do a, a set of plans for their addition. They, they can. Uh, oftentimes an engineer will, will do something, and the architect's cut out of that equation as well. And more often, you see a contractor will come in, and they'll do a, a, a simple sketch, or they'll hire uh, some, some uh, drafter to just drop a, a simple set of plans that aren't done very well, but they're done well enough that they get a permit. And so architects are constantly battling um, those perceptions and, um, and and those, not only that, not only the perception, but you're, you're also battling the, the cost because the contractor has an advantage. Every stick he buys, every piece of material that they put into an addition or remodel, he upcharges or can, um, you know, he gets a discount at, uh, wherever he's buying it from. And then he charges them, you know, usually charges the clients full price or something like that is built in. So the, so the contractor can absorb the cost of preparing a simple set of plans. And it's really hard as an architect to, uh, to battle that because you're walking in saying, okay, well, I want, uh, uh, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars to do a project, and they're like, "Well, you know, the contractor will do it for nothing," and uh, and he still makes money on it, and so it's really hard to compete with that. And I think uh, the, what architects have to do is really change that perception of we are not the starchitect; um, we are just like everyone else. I mean, we've got kids, we take them to school, we live in your communities and we're, we're the every man as well or every person. And that's, I think something, I think the message that the AIA needs to, um, uh, help perpetuate in, in their campaigns, because really they're, they're the voice, right? I mean, they're, they're the voice that is out there that can, that can say something that people will hear maybe likely here. Um, it's hard for our, the individual architect to, to get that voice out there. And so I think, uh, you know, by banding together, you know, to working together like that uh, in other ways, I mean, maybe people have some other ideas about how we can get that voice out there because we need to do that because otherwise, as Evan said, we will get cut out of the process, whether it's on the big side, when, you know, of doing larger buildings like Cormac was just mentioning or what I'm talking about in doing the smaller projects. We're getting cut out of the process. And I think the other issue that is adding to this is, um, is and I want to get your guys' comment because you do more of this type of stuff, is BIM and how BIM is leading to cut us out of the process unless we take over that process. We keep giving away parts of what we're doing. Um, and... You know, and I think that's that's a, a big, scary thing that um, we need to take back. You know, over time, we've let engineering get away from us. We've let, you know, landscaping, we've let 
um, civil, everything has gone away from us. And if we keep just giving it away, what's left? Well, that's the, that, that's because of, you know, I've always commented about that where, you know, we're so in fear of litigation that we've subdivided our profession so much that we've basically eliminated, um, you know, we, we, to eliminate the fear, we've eliminated a lot of our responsibility and we've given it all away, given it to all of those people that you just named. I mean, we've given the the control and the responsibility where we had the opportunity to, you know, have a greater effect on a project, big or small. You know, we've, we've ended up giving it away. Yeah. Well, let's talk about one way we can maybe get some of that back, and that's using... ArcCat, our sponsor, actually. Yeah. Uh, so would you like someone to draw de- CAD details for you, create BIM objects for you, write specifications for you? Would you like this someone to do it for free? ArcCat has already done all this for you. If you search the ArcCat libraries for these products and more, free of charge, no registration required to download content, uh, ArcCat has created a website devoted to you, the building professional, to find building product information fast and hassle-free. So check out Arcat today at arcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Do you have any Arcat stories this week, Cormac? <laughs> uh, yes, actually. I was looking for a, a casework, you know, plastic laminate casework uh, specification. And sure enough, what was the first place I went to? Arcat to, you know, download it because there was specific sections that were missing out of our office standard uh specification that um you know kind of left our spec wide open for misinterpretation and uh so i um i went on to rcat and uh kind of and it ended up being uh issued out as an addendum and they helped me again or saved me again nice excellent yeah well thank you very much for uh to rcat for sponsoring arcuspeak and saving me <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I want to get your guys' comment about BIM. Where do you see that affecting? I mean, is that an opportunity for architects to get back in the game, to start taking over and becoming the master builder again? Or are we going to be cut out of that process on? And I think that you guys can probably more talk specifically about that because you work on larger structures that involve all these different people and you're, you're using BIM to do that. Are we getting cut out of the process? Is the contractor, the, are, are, the, are they cutting us out again? Or do we have an opportunity using BIM to reassert ourselves back into the, and, and as the control of the master, you mm-hmm. know, the kind of the idea of the master builder and, and will that help save architecture for the future? Man, it's it's complex. It's a super complex issue because with with the projects that we do, if your consultants aren't doing it too, it it loses a lot of value. Yes, um, during totally that <laughs> during that construction process, especially. Um, and so there's got to be some kind of reason up front for you to actually invest in doing it. And if you're just doing it. For yourself, it it probably isn't going to be worth it to do it that way because I don't think that just having a model um, puts you in a better position 
to be yeah. the master builder at all. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly feel like it's, I put out a better product because I understand the building better. Um, but the contractor doesn't look at the BIM model, at least on the projects I'm working on. Now, I, I know that there are contractors out there who will take it and use it and they will get value out of it. Um, but in, in my line of work, the cost estimator doesn't use it. The contractor doesn't use it. The client doesn't use it. Um, the consultants will use it kicking and screaming and mm-hmm. dragging their feet the whole way. So it's a battle. And just to give you a kind of a, a different type of a story, one of the projects that I did a few years ago where it was one of our earlier BIM projects, the contractor rebuilt the entire thing with all the systems themselves and they offered that as a service to the client and they did it. Um, when we had already done it, um, they wanted to do all their own clash detection. They wanted to do all, you know, because they were going to be building it. Right. So on, on one hand I could see that it made sense, but on the other one, you other hand, you could say, well, you already had this great resource. Why didn't you use it? So, um, in that respect, it's going against us because that was a service that they offered and they were able to convince the client to go with it. And so that worked against us in in that regard. Interesting. Well, what's, what's interesting about that story is that it's another example. I, I look at BIM. BIM right now is in its infancy. As much as we're rushing forward to use it, um, it's in its infancy. There's... We, Evan just rattled off so many things that BIM could be doing right now that... Totally capable of it. Probably 99% of the buildings that are out there now that are in Revit or BIM or whatever other program you're using for BIM, um, they are... They're not doing it. I mean, the full integration of specifications into your BIM model, I mean... You'd be able to do that, you know, the, um, just, you know, making your life easier with, uh, you know, doing, um, scheduling and, you know, um, uh, you know, coordination every, changes. You know, I mean, it's the biggest thing I think. Exactly. You know, and all of these things and, and because so many people are reluctant to use it right now, it's really not being used to its fullest potential. So it, we're, you know, I mean, we're still decades off to be quite honest with you in my own opinion, of really, truly being able to use BIM to its fullest extent. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think it's the software company's faults, even though no. there there are problems and there are weird ways to do things, things ways you wouldn't expect. But it's more than that. It, it, I, you have to blame people for not actually using it. It's just like there's no excuse for people not using CAD. I mean, you could use any argument you want. You could say SketchUp. You could say BIM. It's all the same thing. It's architects are very slow to change the way they work right but I, but i mean i think that the the manufacturers of these particular um software whether it be revit or whoever i mean they don't really know what the problems are because i mean you're you are absolutely right there's all these little odd things that you know of ways that you have to draw things or ways around things that you have to draw things you know to have it you know gra- graphically look right you know, and so they're never really going to know that right now because you're not, you don't have a fully integrated project in, you know, nine tenths of the projects being done because, you know, you don't have your structural engineer and your MEP and everybody else working together to kind of get, you know, that 
100% kind of BIM, BIM project. Um, I mean, I've, I've had this most recent project that I started working on, um, you know, our office standard is every project in BIM, you know, in Revit. So here I am doing a, a it's a small little, you know, uh, pool project, a uh, natatorium. And so I started doing the project. Nobody else was doing the project in uh, Revit. Everything else is in CAD. And, you know, we lost a couple of, uh, you know, key team members and stuff. And so um, I... I stopped and I kind of looked at it and I was looking at the time that was being spent on it and everything else. And I just made the command decision. I'm like, you know what? I'm pulling the plug on Revit. I'm, it's going back into CAD and it's going to be a CAD project, not a, a Revit project only because the economy of me trying to, you know, wasting time to, to fix models and all this other stuff to then convert it to CAD, then to send it off to everybody else. I mean, there's, it may not, it may seem negligible, but it's, Oh, it adds it, up. It, it's it, huge. it adds up, you know, so it was making kind of, PDF sets and oh, making yeah. DWG exports and, Oh, and, and Neo, here's, here's an even bigger thing is that, you know, we're going to, we're going to get to a point, you know, right now, um, I think one of the biggest struggles that everybody out there who uses Revit or whatever else, and I'm going to use, I'm going to keep saying Revit because that's what I use, you know, the one of the biggest struggles is to get the the two D form the actual you know the the print your your prints to look right Which to is crazy. to look like what you know CAD could produce. So you're you're spending this exponential effort to try to get your drawings to look right because that's how we build everything right now. We're building it in the you know from the two D paper, not from the three D model. So until we get to the point where contractors are going to be building from the model and not from the drawings, we're not using BIM to its full potential. Um, you know, so there's totally agree. So, so there's going to be, you know, that it, and it's such a pain right now because you look at a set of CAD drawings and you look at a set of Revit drawings and you can tell, absolutely tell which was done in which program because graphically, one reads better and the other one is just this weird you know an assembly of bad line weights and you know um just things um there's just there's all these things that are that you can just tell are just not right with it so so if if bim can't help us <laughs> uh you know reach out and 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 take take back well i think i think it could help us but i think yeah. this goes back to where you started which was we've given so much away and mm. the people we've given it away to are not adopting this right. technology right not yet maybe right I well mean, and again well for a long totally time, generalizing it, so yeah i mean for a long time you know it took a while for i know when when i you know going back we did the CAD work for the engineers, right? I mean, they would take our plans, they'd mark them up and we'd get them back and we would actually do all the CAD work because the engineers didn't have any CAD people. Yeah. They did engineering. Well, over time that changed. Now they do their own drawings and there's lots of reasons why that, and I don't want to get into it, but um, you know, maybe that, that eventually changes. But what I'm hearing though, is that, you know, that's not going to help architect 
architecture from imploding. Uh, you know, BIM may not help us do that. Maybe it does, maybe not. But I guess I'd like to go back to how, <clears throat> how does how do architects communicate to the common people? It, it, and actually, what we not really through should BIM be models, asking sorry, ourselves. Not through BIM, yeah, certainly. <laughs> but what we really should be asking ourselves is, uh, um, you know, how do we how do we communicate our value to to the common people? And really, the bigger question is, is that what is that what's going to help architecture from imploding? I don't know. Does that even help us? Even if we are able to communicate to the common person and they everybody understands that, gee. You know, architects are a great value and, and everyone, you know, should hire an architect to do their projects. Is is that what's going to help the, the profession in the future? Well, I was reading, you know, I, I get a, you know, the daily um, architectural record um, email blast. And, um, you know, this month's issue of architecture record is about um, schools of the 21st century. Uh, Evan, if you haven't picked it up, pick it up. <laughs> there's right. there's some there's some good case studies in there, um, but so I I click on the article and um, there was a link to or if they they just had a side video, um, and it was about the rural studio. So of course you know me being a an Auburn man and rural studio near and dear to my heart, I clicked on it and you know it was it was a kind of a promotional video about the twentieth uh, anniversary of the rural studio. And it had the professor, uh, Andrew Freer on there. Um, great guy, great architect, you know, just f a fantastic educator. And he was sitting there and he was talking about, we're not just a fly by night kind of organization that comes in and does a project and walks away and doesn't really care about how, um, the project is, you know, how it ages and, and, you know, what happened to it after we're done, you know, we're here. We're part of the community. We're we're invested as much as everybody else to the success and failure of everything that's built, you know, in this community. And you know, you were saying it, Neil, that you know, you know, you're a dad. You've got kids in school. You know, you are part of the community, and that's an, that's an area where we can really sell and get ourselves out of the uh, implosion, you know, spiral. And really just kind of educate the community on what we can do to help improve and, you know, help improve not just their community, but our community. And so, you know, it, that's one of many things that we can do is just letting them know, you know, for, yeah, the value, you know, explaining to them and educating them on the value, but letting them know that we're not here to just, you know, one and done and we're out. You know, we're here. We're part of them. We're, you know. I've got an interesting um, take or, or an interesting thing I want to I want to bring up. Um, as as listeners to the show know that, you know, I've, I've, I've been collecting comics for a long time. And many years ago, there were no, um, uh, you know, like the writer or the artist or the inker. Their names were nowhere on the covers. It was, we're buying, you know, this book, it's Superman, it's Batman, it's X-Men, you know, whatever it is. And that's the story you're going to read. And over time, the artists and the writers uh, became 
more, in some cases, more famous in some ways, at least within the industry, than the books they were working on to where it got, it's been at actually at sometimes even myself, I'm like, oh, so-and-so is going to draw this book. Well, I don't really know much about this particular character, but I really like this person's either writing or artwork. So I'm going to go buy that book. And the reason I bring this up is because most of us and most people listening to this show or most people not listening to this show live in a merchant built home. And many people do. Not everybody, but uh, a lot of people do. And so I think one thing that could help architects get their names out there a little bit more is if we can get the the merchant builders out there to advertise. Because one of the frustration, advertise who did the project. Because, and, and, and I know I'm kind of talking pie in the sky, this will probably never happen, but you always see, you drive down the freeway, Evan probably sees this uh, uh, more than, than you do, Cormac, on the East Coast, uh, maybe because there's so much building uh, going on down there and as far as residential development. But you, you drive down the road and you see, you know, KB Project this, Pulte Project that, um, and they put names to them, but... It's like you go in, you get the brochure, you look at the floor plans and the different elevation styles, and it's like, you have no idea who actually did this. It's like, no, this is a Pulte home, and it's you know such and such name. There's no reference to the architect. The architect never gets mentioned. In fact, even when they have the home builders uh, award shows, it's like, oh, so-and-so you know, builder did this project. And it's like, you know, maybe the architect gets a mention and, um, you know, but but it's like, we need to get out we there. We need to and, sign our work. And we need to sign. Yeah, that's an excellent thing to say. We need to sign our work and we need to, you know, get our work signed in the places that people see it the most. And it's like, and it's in their home, in the home they live in. Yeah. For me, this, we, this kind of pulls you know, it all together because what you're talking about is you're putting a human aspect back into it, right? This is made, yeah. this was designed by a person. This was built by people. Architecture is still made by hand. Um, and, and then what we're talking about is we're talking about putting humanity into architecture. I mean, that's one of the biggest, I think, negatives in these articles is they're talking about architecture that is not, uh, that, that doesn't have a sense of humanity, right? So you're, you're talking about how do we connect with people? We make architecture, we put the humanity back into it. And you do that in the way you're talking about, but you also do that in in the way that that's you're solving the problems for clients we're making architecture is about people and there's so many times when it's not about people it's about the ego it's about the object it's about the fashion it's about so many other things too or in lieu of the humanity of it uh, that to Oops. me that's just kind of how it all fits together here with our with our episode absolutely mm, that's kind of a perfect pull together <laughs> absolutely yeah no i i i totally agree that's a good summation well, should we wrap it up then? Let's hear what uh, other people have to say. I'm sure there will be lots of comments on our on our episode here. Yeah how how do we not implode? How do we save architecture for future generations? Or are architects going away the dinosaurs? 
I mean, is, is that going to happen? Uh, we'd love to get some comments on this. So remember to, you know, visit the site, arcaspeakpodcast.com and leave the comments on this particular episode, episode 51. And before we go, I want to send a thank out to our sponsor, ArcCat, for sponsoring episode 51 of the ArcSpeak podcast. Thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, thanks. And everyone else, uh, keep uh, subscribed and, and uh, follow us on Twitter. And I want to give a quick shout out also to the ArcSpeak podcast hotline, uh, which is 415-484-8496. I think we may get some... Uh, people commenting on this and uh, feel free to call in, leave a message and uh, maybe we'll, we'll get it on the show. Yeah. If you're driving right now and you can't get on the website and type in the comments, just call the number and, and leave a, leave a comment that way. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and uh, I got to uh, throw something out here. Uh, somebody called me on a mistake that I made during our Christmas show. No. Uh, yes. Um, and they said, how how do, how do you expect uh, somebody to buy you a gift if you uh, got it wrong? And it was when I was talking <laughs> about the um, Batman, you know, 1966 uh, DVDs. And I said it was the Frank Dozier Batmans. It's actually Bill Dozier, not Frank Dozier. Oh, so they were impossible to purchase because you got the first name <laughs> exactly. wrong. I get it. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah I, uh, that, I caught some grief from a buddy. That's pretty of mine. tough. Wow. Well, we've corrected the wrong yep. now. Yep. So. Public apology. So we have one listener that we know of. <laughs> 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 no, seriously. Thanks everybody for listening. And if you haven't already done so, please leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate those as well. Stay subscribed. Thanks everybody. Good night.
Yeah.